So th there's a lot of reason for people to not want this to happen and to think these things are catastrophic. The, the best argument I have heard, and I don't, I don't really know how compelling this is, but it, it makes sense, is that you have lagging indicators for so much of what the Fed is monitoring, right? Right. You've got wages, you've got jobs, you've got house prices, you've got the stock market on some level can be knee-jerk reactive, but it's still somewhat of a lagging indicator over time. Mm -hmm. So all these things are, are slow to react over time. And the argument that I've heard some economists make is, we've already put enough stress in the economy, we need to wait and let it see what happens. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Higher Standard Podcast, where we give you ultra-premium, unfiltered truth when it comes to building your wealth and curating the lifestyle of your dreams. No games, no drama, and no shenanigans. I am your host, Chris Nahibi, and I'm here to help you distill the immense amount of information and disinformation out there on the interwebs and give you the opportunity to choose a higher standard for yourself. There are no gurus here, and no one gives a damn about how wealthy you look. I'm an attorney and a banker, amongst other things. Does that mean you should listen to me? Hell no. This is just full disclosure that while we talk about money, wealth, law, investing, and a lot of related topics, you should always speak to your own advisors for an opinion tailored to your unique investment perspective. I am obligated to tell you that nothing contained in this show is in fact legal or investment advice and is being provided solely for entertainment purposes. So sit back, relax your mind, and get ready for a different kind of podcast where we elevate your baseline in crispy, high-resolution audio. This isn't a different standard. It's the higher standard. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I am one of two hosts, the Jeff Goldblum of podcasting, a.k.a. the Sasha Baron Cohen of real estate, and sitting Next to me, as always, is Mr. Uchi Wally Wally himself. Mr. Uchi Bang Bang. <laughs> it doesn't get old. The Fred Friendstone, the My Barney Rubble, the one and only Said Omar. Hello, everybody. So, uh, the easiest and quickest thing to point out is the inflation numbers have since come out since we last spoke. Mm hmm. And, well, not good. Not good. No. Not good for not anybody. Not good at all. Yeah. Right. So, for those of you who stuck under a rock the last couple of days, 8.3%. It was not as low as people were hoping and expecting it to be. That's coming off an 8.5% print uh, from the previous one. That's two months ago. So there has not been a significant improvement in two months' time. And that was the last print that could have possibly stopped a 75 basis point increase uh, from Jerome Powell. Right. And then, because it was not significantly better... The market the next day had a huge swing in reaction. Right. And for those of you who don't uh, watch the market every single day obsessively like me, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to explain what happened. But let's get to the full inflation numbers first. In the 12 months through August, the CPI increased to 8.3%. A 10.6% decline in gasoline prices was offset by increases in rents, food, and health care. Food prices rose 0.8% with the cost of food consumed at home increasing 0.7%. Consumers also paid more for electricity and natural gas. Right. So the first thing I, I thought of right when this came out, and I read this quote, uh, was this is exactly what we've been talking about on the show, where we've been pointing people to say that 30% of CPI is housing costs. And even though it's not 
rent, there's an equivalent of rent for people who've bought homes and what their mortgage payments are. Right. And that number is excruciatingly high because of how high home prices have been. Right. So this is kind of feeding into this this circular argument we made over and over and over again. It's part of the reason why I've been so angry with so many social media personalities. You can't have CPI go get to the target rate of two to three percent if you don't have home prices come down. If it's thirty percent, exactly of this number. So if everything the Fed you know is going off of based on the data, right? And a huge part of the CPI report, forty percent of it actually has to do with housing and shelter. Yeah. And housing and shelter is a lagging indicator. Now people can start to understand why we were ringing the bell for such a long time that it's a lagging indicator. So think about this. Gas prices came down 10% in a month. Yeah. Big time. Guess what? On the next CPI report, they're not going to have that benefit. They're not going to have that benefit. Plus you have some added challenges here because it was really rent and food that drove consumer prices higher. Exactly. We're walking into the holiday season. And what's really strange too, is if I've checked out some consumer spending reports, there seems to be no slowdown in consumer spending yet. No. So if inflation's gone up and, and we're talking about the real inflation, the impacts us as a consumer is approximately 20%. Mm-hmm. And all these things are happening and yet the consumers are still spending. In my mind, that means there's a big red flag of a significant slowdown more than we felt already on the horizon. Right. And with what... And couple that with the fact that the Fed was hoping to see, let's see if what we've been doing has been helping at all. Well, core inflation also went up. Yeah, it did. Core inflation went up. It was, they were, the expectation was 6%, but it came in at 6.3. In July, it was at 5.9%. So it actually reversed. Yeah, and, that's, and this is the irony uh, of, of what so many people are going to miss is we talk so much about CPI. Inflation right. in the, in the news, mm-hmm. but the Fed has already come out and said, and Jerome Powell said it on probably four or five different occasions that they're looking at core inflation to be their barometer for whether their financial monetary policy, fiscal policy, is actually working. Right. And in this case, it went the wrong way because you know why? Because on core, it takes out food and energy, mm-hmm. right? So an even greater emphasis on housing, right? Absolutely. So this had a pretty pronounced impact because core inflation was up. Yep. And because inflation did not decrease significantly at all in the two-month period, because remember there was that, that month break in between where the Fed had this opportunity to look and everybody was hoping for this resoundingly positive thing, right. there were two things that were really, really prominent the next day. Thing number one is I woke up to news of everybody saying, has inflation peaked? Is inflation peaking? Are we peaking yet? In yeah. my mind, there's nothing to say that we've peaked yet. Yeah, exactly. Everyone thought the peak has already happened. I, I think it's yet to come. I think CPI might continue to kind of level out a little bit or low, lower, lower down slightly. But I, I do think, as you pointed out, with energy costs already being what they are, mm-hmm. I don't see core inflation coming down anywhere in the near term. I, don't, I personally don't think that, I mean, they're not going to get the benefit of gasoline uh, in the upcoming months. And if housing is, is as much of a lagging indicator as this last CPI report has shown, then the upcoming CPI reports are actually, if not, I feel like this is going to go the other way. It very well could. And to give people kind of some perspective, the reason why the market had a huge shift the next day after this happened wasn't because this news in and of itself was just shocking. Mm -hmm. It was the economic impacts of the market pricing in what could possibly be an even larger Fed interest rate increase of 1% versus the 75 basis points. Right. The market freaked out and thought, shit, not only is this not enough to back off Powell from a 75 base point increase, but now there's increasing probabilities on Bloomberg and everybody who tracks 
the probability index for the next Fed interest rate increase of a 1% Fed interest rate increase. Yeah, that conversation is now being had. And then the market's also, correct me if I'm wrong, also going to price in uh, rate hikes for now November and December because based on what's been happening, it hasn't been effective. So this is where the market starts to get weird. So had the numbers have come out and met expectations, you would have seen what is a normal thing we've talked about. And as it relates to you know, mortgage rates, we've talked about this in the past, definitely. What happens is the market tends to price in the things that it thinks it's going to happen. And unless there's a pivot like this with a reprint or a report that comes out that's significantly different or deviates from what we thought might be a large probability, the market then prices in the additional risk. So you see the run-up before Powell actually does anything, which subsequently impacts things, mm -hmm. which is why several episodes ago when we were talking about that one real estate agent who was in his car saying, ha, 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 the Fed's interest rates have increased and ha, 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 interest rates haven't gone up. Right. Well, that was the irony of the whole situation is he didn't understand how the market prices these things in. It had already been priced in to the, the market already by the time they increased rates. And just like this, exactly what happened, a 0.210% two-year had increased from just a few years ago to now above 3.75%. Wow. So the yield curve is even more inverted now. So the 10-year is more influential for mortgage rates. We know that. Mm -hmm. But the 10-year being below the two-year still hasn't fully priced in a normalized recessionary economy, whatever right. that may actually be in the future. Mm -hmm. So this is going to be a problem long-term. And when you think about the context of shelter, food, energy, healthcare costs were all up, Wages also rose too. Right. But we expect them to decline in the near term. And the reason why is because the other lagging indicator, employment, has to go up. Yeah. If there's more unemployed people looking for jobs, companies don't have to be as competitive, and then wages come down. So we're not seeing anything that really indicates we are at a peak or we're at the top and things are going the other way. They need to go the other way. Right. They should. The whole point of all of this is to go the other way. But nothing that we're seeing right now is really indicative of, of, frankly, what I think is a peak. Mm -hmm. So the two-year yield was the highest it had been since 2007 on the inflation read. The Dow was down 900 points subsequently the next day by, I want to say, like midday. Not because there was a concern that 75 basis point may not be enough, but because of that 100 basis point increase being an additional new probability. Right. So the market really corrected itself pretty quickly and swiftly and yet still here we are with the inverted yield curve, which is almost in every set of circumstances, a huge red flag of a looming recessionary economy. Right. Nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. And like you said, you know, they're really going to just need to see uh, that unemployment number start to tick up and really see those housing prices continue to go down. Yeah. And I'll tell you that the housing, the housing rhetoric has spun so much lately that, that it's people like people forgotten what people were saying just a couple months ago mm -hmm. about how resistant they were to the idea of values going down and now it's kind of a generally accepted thing i think uh you had a, an interesting thing from moody's on this yeah i actually did so um moody's and just to break down moody's a little bit further more than maybe that we've done in the past right uh moody analytics what they do is they assess whether local economic fundamentals including local income levels can support local housing prices if a housing market is quote-unquote overvalued by more than 25 percent Moody's deems it significantly overvalued. Yep. Okay. So now they've now updated their figures because we've touched on it before. This may sound familiar. And I want to pause. We did say that what 
it was not going to be a significant change the first time they updated. So this is actually the second time they've updated the yeah. numbers. Yeah. And we knew when we were going into it, the first update was just a stepping stone to what we now are going to get. To, to what we now know we're going to get. Exactly. And look, I'm not, I kudos to them for continuing to update their numbers, you know, then just not sticking by it. But they say now these 210 significantly overvalued housing markets include places like we've mentioned Boise, Overvalued by 72%. That's crazy to me. That's insane. Insane. Charlotte, 66%. Austin, 61%. Las Vegas, 59%. Phoenix, 57%. All these places overvalued by that much. It's insane. Those those are large. I mean, you're talking more than double and sometimes, I mean, one and a half times. I mean, it's crazy the values of where they are at. But so uh, to give some clarity on how Moody's operates, right? So Moody's is a data aggregator and people like banks like ourselves we use their data to to feed into our risk models. The current model in banking, uh, if you're a large institution at least anyway, is a current expected credit loss module or CECL, mm-hmm. right? And, and CECL came about as largely as a result of the Great Recession. And uh, this was a way to make banks and setting aside the reserves, react, and instead of being reactive in the old ALLL analysis, the allowance for loan losses and lease reserves, it allowed banks to be proactive. Mm-hmm. So what it really means is every time a single a bank makes a single loan to you, to me, to a business, to anybody, mm-hmm. you have at origination or acquisition, so whether they buy the loan from somebody else or they actually make the loan themselves, they have to set aside a reserve day one for right. losses. Exactly. So as you might imagine, as you make more loans, you have to set aside more reserves for losses and every single loan carries a probability of risk, of loss. Right. Well, the models and the data that banks typically use come from places like Moody's in order to come up with those calculations. Right. So when Moody's puts out a print like this, talking about how overvalued this is, there's a trickle-down effect because this is going to effectively force banks to set aside more reserves mm-hmm. for things like properties in Idaho. Yeah, exactly. Or properties in, in some of these overinflated markets like Las yeah. Vegas. Or because, Austin, right. Exactly. So there's, there's, an, there's an additional risk of default there. Now, because some of these people have super low interest rates, because some of these people have you know 30-year mortgages and they're getting paid well, the defaults should not be anything like they were during the Great Recession. However, I will put a big asterisk here. If wages come down, mm-hmm. if people are on commission-based jobs, you know, if you were like a loan officer, for example, right. you're not going to make the same amount of money you once did. So will there be some defaults for this niche period of people who were making a ton of money in a very economically prosperous time over the last 14 years? Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I would certainly say we're going to see the default action tick up in the next 12 to 24 months. Really? Yeah, I think that's going to happen. Now, I don't it's think it's almost inevitable, be, right? It's to some degree it is because you're going to see a correction in order to to have what we need to have happen and to hit the Fed's target target rates, right? You need to have unemployment rise. That means people are going to lose their jobs. Yeah. In and of itself, there, there's a situation. And of those one. people losing their jobs, many of them own homes. Many of them own homes. And then you're also going to have people who are going to make less money because wages need to go down, right? If wages are going up despite all these things, and, and again, this is the, the weird enigma of the Fed themselves saying, well, you know where everybody, we're not in a recessionary economy. Right. Labor market's strong, man. Right. We're like, what are you doing? Yeah. And this is why. It's, it's the labor market's strong. We're not in a recessionary economy, but we're going to go ahead and destroy the labor market by doing this. Yeah. Which ironically was the same argument that so many quote influencers or social media personalities or one even some economists for that matter were saying the Fed's going to have to back off this interest rate increases by year end. Yeah. And we had said the entire time. Yeah. You and I. Mm-hmm. That was not going to happen. Yeah. And now that's the consensus. Yeah, well I mean he's Jerome Powell has definitely come out and made it very clear where he stands. 
and that how he's how he plans on carrying this out. Yeah, but all Volker all day, baby. What I want, yeah, Volker all day. But um, what I wanted to ask you is because I've been you know tuning in more to CNBC and listening to some of these interviews of, with these e- economists ar- around the nation, and I wanted to get your take on what some of these guys are coming out saying how the Fed is doing more harm than they are good by raising hikes. Now is that them yeah. just trying to protect their investors and wherever whoever they work for and trying to you know still you know cash in on on this? But how could you even make that argument when you know like in, this inflation problem can become permanent. It, it can become permanent. I think I don't think any of them think that's a high probability. But what I, well, here's what I'll say is I watch CNBC all day long. Yeah, it's literally on my television all day long, and I'll turn the volume up whenever something you know kind of piques my interest. And for those of you who do follow my social media, you know that I do occasionally post screenshots or maybe some video from something that I found interesting that I recorded while I'm in the office. Um. And I've seen a lot of these economists. There, there's a, a lot of economists out there that I think are great that I disagree with and they make statements like this. Yeah. They, and there's a lot of people who work for uh, wealth advisory firms or manage money. Mm-hmm. And they're really worried about their clients' positions because they know things like, for example, 900-point drop in the Dow yeah. the day after the, yeah. the, the, the CPI print is a significant problem. And they're, they're, they're pointing the finger straight at the Fed saying, what the fuck, you guys, are, you guys are doing this to my clients. You guys are doing this to everybody. Yeah. So I, I don't necessarily know that that's... Here's the thing: is everybody wants the market to correct in every everything but their sector. Yeah, of course. The stock guys want the real estate market to correct. The real mm-hmm. estate guys want the stock market to correct, and you know, vice versa, and so on and so forth. But this all needs to correct. Right. The economy is all intertwined, mm-hmm. and we're gonna have to lose value. We are eviscerating net worth mm-hmm. at its most basic core. You're going to eviscerate net worth for individuals who have. Assets in the stock market, who have real estate assets, who have businesses that are producing a ton of money. And for those of you who don't know, one of the ways you value a business is by using a multiple against their earnings before interest and taxes and depreciation and amortization or EBITDA. Mm-hmm. Um, those multiples will go down. Well, the value will go down because the, the revenue coming in should go down and the multiples themselves will go down in addition to that. So you're going right. to take a lot of net worth out of the economy. Right. So th- there's a lot of reason for people to not want this to happen and to think these things are catastrophic. The, the best argument I have heard, and I don't, I don't really know how compelling this is, but it, it makes sense, is that you have lagging indicators for so much of what the Fed is monitoring, right? Right. You've got wages, you've got jobs, you've got house prices, you've got the stock market on some level can be knee-jerk reactive, but it's still somewhat of a lagging indicator over time. Mm-hmm. So all these things... Are, are slow to react over time. And the argument that I've heard some economists make is we've already put enough stress into the economy. We need to wait and let it see what happens. Mm. We, need to, we need to wait four to six months and let those lacking indicators come in because we're, we're effectively trying to hit a moving target. And it's, right. re- it's, really hard to, it's, it's really easy to overdo it and it's really hard to gauge how far we should go. Right. But we know from you know, past experiences like with Volcker, he had to take an aggressive approach just to correct it within two years. Oh know? yeah, so, it, it caused mean, a double dip of recession in '82, and there was there was significant financial impacts. But he had a tremendous amount of confidence behind him, confidence that I don't think Jerome Powell has. Yeah, and keep in mind, we're walking into uh, a November election. Yeah, in which this will be absolutely critical to everybody's discussion about what they're going to do politically in the midterms. Mm-hmm. So because of that. This print has assured this will be the conversation point for Republicans and Democrats alike 
and they're going to disagree on the ultimate conclusion on how this should be done. And here we are with Jerome Powell in the center of that. Right. So is this going to somewhat erode consumer confidence in the thing that he's doing? It could, yeah. yeah. If you have the Democrats attacking him, the Republicans attacking him, and no one's happy with the economy because everybody's losing money, yeah. you can see how this rhetoric could spin up and say, like, Jerome Powell is wrong. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. I mean, we'll see how it continues to play out. But I, the thing that stood out to me the most with, with this report was just, you know, with the housing being such such a lagging indicator and the upcoming months not getting the benefit of gas, I don't see this problem going away anytime soon. No, I really don't. And histo- there's no, I don't have any data to support this. But what I will say about gas prices is every single time that I can remember, and I've watched the market for probably, really, really watched the markets for about 10 years. Yeah. And for the first five to seven years of just me watching like CNBC, I, I honestly didn't get it. The tickers, the the information. Yeah. It really took kind of this congealing period of time for me to really dive in and become kind of nerding out on the economy and kind of the macro picture and then diving back down in individual sectors for me, right. to like, for like the light bulb to go on. I can imagine. I mean, just like any industry, right? It's all about pattern recognition. At some level, yeah, but it's just overwhelming. You're just yeah. getting so much data. And the problem for everybody out there is so much of this data is from sources that have a bias. Mm-hmm. So much of this data that's coming to you is from places that frankly aren't really. I, so I'll see an article from like Fortune. Yeah. Is that really reliable? Yeah. Or, you know, and does Fortune quote like the source? Yeah. So this is why on like social media, social media, one of the things I always do is I quote sources because you really got to know who, you, who you're getting your data from because there are several people out there who are known for not being the world's greatest reporters in that in that regard. Yeah. And there are, are several outlets that are just known to be the source. For yeah, you got to be careful. The National right. Bureau of Labor Statistics, for example, that's where you go for labor statistics. Right, exactly. But you might get a headline from somebody else later right. on. So like that's why like when we get the CPI print, I really want to go and check out the data that's actually given out, not necessarily the headline that somebody gives me in an article. Right. But then the scary part is then when you go to rely on somebody like Enber, not calling something a recession, you're like... Well, yeah. The National yeah. Bureau of Economic Research, I, I think they knew when they said they needed more time to compile information that we were already in a recessionary economy. I just think that they they also knew how politically charged it would. Can you imagine if they would have declared it before the midterm elections? Yeah. We're in a recession. This is your fault. The National... The National Association of Realtors didn't do anybody any political favors by declaring a housing recession. Right, exactly. But it was so obvious in real time to everybody else, it was undeniable. Yeah, exactly. Whereas I'm sure you can make some kind of argument that we're not in a national recession yet, especially because none of these things have effectively peaked. Mm-hmm. At least in yeah, our interpretation. Yeah, so, right. Speaking of social media, mm-hmm. I don't know if you happen to catch the article on Cobby Lane. Uh, I, don't, I never knew this gentleman's name. I recognize the face, though. Yeah, he is the uh, African American uh, gentleman who got famous on TikTok for not actually speaking. I think he's I think he's lives in Italy. He's Italian, um, and he uh, he's got worldwide fame now because right. so much of his videos are are based on just like human redundancy and like and and just pointing out obvious things. He's things, communicating without words, so he can go international. It doesn't matter what language. Things speak. that don't make sense, and he's the guy that got really popular for just shrugging his shoulders, right? Yeah, and and he has been able to la- leverage the brand. Clearly, a smart kid. This guy's twenty two years old. Mm-hmm. So I, I this article from Complex, and I saw it in a couple of the places. I think Fortune had it too in some of the places. Broke down some of his financials. Oh, God. And I thought to myself, like, holy shit. So did he tell them? I wonder if he, how did they get this information? They verified it. Yeah. So some of this is verified. So I'll, I'll read parts of the article to you. So Okay. So uh, Kavi Lame recently became the most followed person on TikTok, now boasting 149.5 million fans. God damn. 
That is a lot of people following. A lot of people. And 2.4 billion likes on the platform. But of course, he's already thinking about his next move, which is, I mean, for a 22-year-old, can you imagine right. like, if this is the position that you're sitting in? Yeah, exactly. You just like, got all this fame and uh, the amount yeah. of money that he's making. Shout out to this guy uh, for, for what he's doing now. I, I, I think so. <laughs> some, some of the ambitions this guy has are really, really well thought out. I, it's, it's so much shocking that somebody you, you would recognize from a, a, a social media platform who is just supposed to be like juvenile and immature right. is, is this like put together. Yeah, savvy, right? So the article goes on saying, in a profile for Fortune, Lame22 revealed that he has dedicated a great deal of time toward learning English by watching American cartoons and movies as well as spending an hour every day working with a tutor. He has made no secret of his, of his desire to be an actor. Wow. Yeah, now I will say he did he did Kudos. cite, cite his, uh, the actor he wanted to work with is Will Smith. Yeah. Which <laughs> probably should be a little more up to date on that one though, homie. Right, but, right, yeah, exactly. But that being said, here's the numbers, ready? This this blew me away. Lame continues to make quite a living on TikTok. He earned $450,000 through his partnership with Hugo Boss, which involved him walking during its Milan Fashion Week show and posting about it online. Mm. You got paid almost half a million dollars to walk down the red carpet in Paris's Fashion Week or yeah. Milan's Fashion Week. Yeah. I mean, I'm willing like, to pay like a I, certain amount of money. Damn, to the, bro. <laughs> you know Talk what about I mean? dream come true. Seriously. And I thought that number was big in and of itself. The next two numbers will blow your fucking mind. This is crazy. All, all from social media. All from social media. So Fortune reviewed a contract. So they actually verified this with a major Hollywood studio indicating he would get $750,000 for a single clip, mm. i.e. a post. Wow. Kabi is estimated to make around $10 million this year. God damn, man. 22 years old, $10 million, $750,000 for a clip. So you're telling me I should have a social media account? And check this out. This, this is blows me away. This, this is something I think is, is awesome. This is, this is like every dream. We call it the American dream here, but really mm. this is just international dream. Lame and his parents uh, and three siblings immigrated to Italy from Senegal in 2001. He joined TikTok in 2020 after losing his job at a fa- as a factory machine worker due to the pandemic. Mm. <laughs> According to CBS News, he officially became a citizen of Italy last month. Talk about a dream come true for Yes, yeah, seriously, man. It's astonishing. But the reason why I bring this up is because I think this is one of those things where so much of corporate America has devalued and deprioritized social media. But this this is a very, I mean, granted, this guy is the number one guy on TikTok. Right, right. And he, he is very unique in the way he's done things. But this highlights, this, this is absolutely a business. Right. There's a lot of money to be made here. He is not a Kardashian. He is not The Rock. He's nobody who would have risen to prominence if not for his own creative skills and his own talents. Right, his own ambition. I mean, it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see how he uses this as a springboard to, you know. Well, I mean, he wants to act. I mean, he probably will do that. But if you're making $10 million a year yeah, at 22 years old. I mean, you, you got to think, though, that, that that can't be sustainable, right, for the rest of his life. So, yeah, it's good. Kudos it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be. He, if, if, I mean, keep in mind, at, at his age, he doesn't seem like a guy who, 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 who spends stupid money. I mean, he's, oh, he's, he's not, he's not seem, showcasing. He doesn't it, right? seem very flashy in any right, way. Right. I mean, I don't know what he's spending his money on and I, I don't, I don't know what his familial situation is, but what I will say is if he manages the next couple of years, right. Even if it's just one more year, 10 million. Right. Yeah, exactly. You're good, bro. Like for the rest of your life, you could be, yeah, good. you would hope so. You would hope so. And hopefully somebody got some smart people behind him to help him invest. Yeah. I mean, hopefully he's not spending the money on, on, on stupid stuff and, and you continue to grow that. I mean, even if, 
you do. I mean, it's not like, but here's the thing. I look at someone like Bad Baby. You, yeah. You know who that girl, you know, the yeah, Catch Me Outside girl we talked about, talk about that on the show. Yeah. $52 million a year in a single year on OnlyFans. Right. right. You do one year like that. Yeah. I mean, but also kudos to him for, you know, understanding that he should un- learn e- uh, English and come out here, become that much more marketable, become a household name. You know what I mean? That's the, that's the way to get into acting. Because, um, you know, there's a lot of like professional athletes that, you know, aren't as marketable just because they don't understand uh, or don't speak English. Yeah. And that, that's it's, it's that funny pick? to me how like a lot of them don't ever really try to learn English. Yeah. Like, especially like the European like soccer players that are really, really, really prominent. Like they, they don't really try or if they do, it's very, very broken. They don't really dedicate any right, time like to one it. of the one of the top baseball players in the world right now. He's uh, like the best pitcher and also one of the best hitters for the Angels, Shohei Otani. I think he's not as marketable because he doesn't know how to speak English that well, or at least that was that last year. I don't know where he's at now. Yeah, I mean, I, I would hope that he would learn at some point in time. Not because like it's an ethnocentric thing, but just because there's a wide audience and money making opportunities out there. Exactly. I mean, if you offered me half a million dollars a, a year if I learned another language, I'm learning that fucking language. Yeah, Rosetta Stone, bro. Rosetta, dude, no, Pimsler is the way to go. Pimsler is the way to the go. The FBI right. uses uses Pimsler. I, I tried Pimsler for like a solid two months before I went to Japan. I, I knew enough, dude. Like I was. Dude, good. I remember. I remember you going around the office. Hey, go call. hopefully we have some japanese (laughs) listeners that could tell me what you said yeah it basically said you speak english yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) but it's all good so there there was a this is somewhat off topic but uh you and i were talking about pmb rock being murdered i didn't even know who this artist was i didn't either was that that bad but but i don't know maybe we're that out of touch but i mean he wasn't like that popular was he I don't know, but the only thing that I have, like I mentioned in the past, is YouTube, and this was all over YouTube, right? So um, it was all over social media too. I'm guessing. I got like a, I got like a little like a Apple news alert, like it was made made major headlines, but I didn't know who PNB Rock was, and I, I don't I feel terrible saying that, you know, God rest his guy's soul and everything else, but like I, I'm just, yeah, I, I, I didn't it's know. Unfor- it's un- it's unfortunate what happened to him. Basically, what happened was I think. Him and some friends were at were at Roscoe Chicken and Waffles. And oh, why are you gonna laugh while you say it? You, no, you literally I, I, you started laughing. I, who laughed? You, you started who laughed? laughing. A little I bit. amuse you. Who, <laughs> funny, funny how. <laughs> funny, funny how. That's got to be on the soundboard. We got to get that one. We got to get down on the soundboard. Uh, so, I've been to Roscoe Chicken and Waffles. This location? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Which location was it? Was I have it? no idea. I'm pretty sure I've been to this one. Okay. I've been to almost all of them. Yeah, I've been to this one. That's the photo I've seen. Okay. So, uh, what I will tell you is, they they are the play. I mean, at, at late at night. Like club or not, like if you get, we would play basketball. We would go there afterward. We went to the clubs. We'd go there afterward. It is packed. Yeah, after our spot, right? Like there is a line usually. I mean, it is. It is. It's not like an IHOP. I mean, our Denny's. It is packed with people. Right, right. It's like a, it's like a Los Angeles monument at this point. It's like food's not can't be that good. It is that good. Come on, the chicken and waffles at Roscoe's. Stop do, it. Um, do not fucking play around. Really, that it good. is that good. I've gone. Only chicken and waffles I've ever had was has been Bruxy's. Is way better than that. I've never actually eaten their chicken and waffles. Have you ever had um, in uh, Las Vegas? No. Uh, Gr- uh, Grand Lux. I've had. I've ate the Grand Lux. Grand yeah, Lux like has the chicken. They have chicken and waffles there. I like theirs because it's all chicken breast. It's like chicken strips. Nice. Oh, you're healthy. My bad. No, I'm not healthy. I just don't yeah. like dark meat. Yeah. Um. <laughs> but anyway, so why <laughs> why we posted this? It's fatty, bro. You don't like, you don't like dark meat. Huh? I don't. I don't. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> don't be a pervert. That's the only dark meat. Yeah. Uh, so. This this gentleman, unfortunately, uh, rest in peace, was shot and killed at Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles. And what I thought was, what blew me away, right, was the very next day, within 24 hours, they were back open and serving customers. Like, how long, like, is there any place that you go to that you love that much where if there was a shooting the night before, 
you'd be like, I still got to go the next day. There's a lot of shootings at Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles, though. I mean, I don't know about people dying, but there's there's certainly a lot of like. Keep in mind, like they they so they're, they're like so they're like oh, it happened again, guys. Clean up on aisle three. Let's no, open back no, up again not at all. I'm I'm just saying like. It's still somebody's business. Like they're still running a business there. I mean, you talking about the consumers going there? You talking about the fact they opened it? I mean, I, mean, I feel like it's about? a bad look for them, right? Like you can't like shut it down for a couple of days at least. I mean, it's, it's one hell of a bad look. It's yeah, a, it, that's it, a really like, bad look for them. Like I mean, especially with someone that's clearly as uh, as popular as he is. But man, I don't know. I just thought that that blew me away. There's no place that I'd go to that I I, I need that bad. So. I mean, it is good chicken and waffles, but yeah, no, it's it's completely bad form. I I don't disagree with that whatsoever. I I think some of that stuff is pretty obvious, but you know, it's just, it's consumer sentiment, it's business. And and frankly, I think sometimes people even go there as like fans because they want to see it. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird, man. So yeah, that's weird. So I did want to bring up a couple things that I noticed as it related to the federal reserve and the looming hundred base point hike. There were a couple articles out. To your point earlier, one uh, by Chris Constantinos or Constant, I can't say his name. Can you see that? No. Yeah, whatever. Constantinos. Constantinos. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah, I'm not very good at Greek names, apparently. 100 base point rate hike by the Fed would be a bit of a, quote, overkill, according to him. He's a strategist. At the same time, Mm. right next to it on the same screen, you've got my favorite bank in the world, (laughs) Brian Moynihan's Bank of America. We need to get the unemployment rate up to bring down inflation, says B of A's Harris. No shit. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, guy. Thank you. Thanks, guy. Why don't you talk to your CEO who said, I believe it was two or three months ago, three months ago, that uh, the consumer's in great shape, man. Yeah, consumer spending is great. Consumer spending is great. Tons of savings. We're good, bro. I think we're going to be fine. Come on, man. Yeah. I'm Brian Moynihan. (laughs) I'm a bank nerd. Yeah. Remember that shit? At the same time, below I that, I don't know, but I don't know. To touch on that point, I mean, I get it. A hundred basis points, generally speaking, in the past, for people that don't know, when the when the Fed does make a move, right, it's usually n- nothing more than a twenty-five basis point hike, right. So the stuff we've been seeing over the last oh it's several months, it's extraordinary. Yeah. That that's why that's why people are talking about it. That's why we're talking about it, making it a big deal. Right, so yes, a hundred basis points would be four times the amount of what the Fed normally would do, right? But given the circumstances and what just transpired with the CPI report and, sh- and them showing, like, you know, the quantitative tightening that they said they were doing that th- that was going to help, and the um, the rate hikes that they that they did do, it didn't do anything. And in fact, core inflation went up. So I don't know. I don't know if a hundred basis point hike would be quote unquote overkill. So let's look at the odds, shall we, kids? Yeah. All right. This from an article from Barron's titled, Wall Street Predicts Another Volcker Moment to Tame Sticky Inflation. God, where is my damn credit? Why don't we get cited for this? Mm. As seen on the yeah. higher standard, thank you very much, Chris and Saeed. Yeah, we don't yeah. get that shit. Yeah, right. And if, we don't and if, get that. And if you did hear it here first, go ahead and do us a favor, man. Just go ahead and leave a five-star review. Honest. Yeah, honest. Five-star yeah, review. honest. Because anything review. less than five stars would be dishonest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't, don't be that guy. Yeah, don't be that guy or girl. So, uh, here we go. Here's a quote. Ready? Yep. So great are concerns about entrenched inflation... That the chances of a 100 basis point rise from the Fed Open Market Committee, or FOMC, next week leapt from negligible to 40%. God damn. The move would be the first of its magnitude in more than 40 years. 
when Fed Chairman Paul Volcker engineered two massive but brief recessions to tame inflation and the prime lending rate exceeded 21%. Wow. And we have spoken at length on this show about how Jerome Powell would love to cuddle with Volcker, God rest his soul, because he loves him. He idolizes him. He worships him. He quotes him. Right. This is a huge, in my mind, it's way greater than 40%. And the market's priced in greater than that. Right. So I, I, I think there's a good possibility that we will hear the Fed secretary say at some point in the not too distant future that he's going to try to drive us deep in, deeper into a recession to try to tame inflation. I just realized that by the time this episode comes out, that decision will have already been made. Well, then hashtag blessed. You're welcome. <laughs> so we'll, by, by the time you guys hear this, you guys might already know. Maybe the 100 basis point increase already took place. So because uh, that, that'll come out on the 21st, right? Yep. Uh, so, 21st. Yeah. Well, a week, a week meet, from now. They meet on the 20th and the 21st. And then maybe the 22nd. No, no. It comes. So he does it after the 21st. Uh, I'm on the 21st. So on the 21st. Okay, yeah. So and I will go. be in Hawaii on yeah. that day. Oh, damn. Ball so hard. Bro. Ball so hard. Going yeah. to uh, Aulani. Aulani. Yeah. With the, the, Disney, the Disney Resort. I really don't know what to expect. Oh, I really you're gonna, no you're gonna love it. It's a, it's a different experience. But when we went last year, Ooh, boy, we didn't go to Alani though. We didn't ball out like that. Yeah, you, you said when we went last year, were you <laughs> we went, it no, it was, it was two resorts down. You know, the cheaper one. No. Yeah, just, <laughs> um, it's going going with the kids, man. It's a different experience. You you'll get to create better like lifelong memories. So, I hope you enjoy it. All right. Well, before we transition to the questions, and we got a lot and a bit of an asterisk here, I had to bribe the audience for this. So on my social media, we said that we would pay $20 via Venmo tomorrow morning to the mm. best question. There are a lot of questions. So $10 from me, $10 from Chris. <laughs> <laughs> $20 from you, $0 yeah. from Chris. Yeah, there you go. I wanted to end a little bit of this, this 100 base point talk with uh, a bit of a quote from uh, a brokerage that, called Nomura Securities. Okay. Wall Street brokerage Nomura Securities is now calling a 100 basis point hike, uh, calling for a 100 basis point hike, writing a, quote, a more aggressive path, end quote, is needed to dislodge persistent price pressures across food, rent, and cars. And I don't necessarily disagree with that. Mm -hmm. You can either do it aggressively at 100 points now and get them to move, or you can continue to raise over time and get them to move. Right. But one of the things we've seen is we've seen the Fed target rate increase significantly, yeah. now talking north of 4%. The article goes on, uh, learning lessons from the 1970s when monetary policy was eased too soon, today's, today's Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, will likely keep pressure up on, uh, up, <laughs> should we hit the reading rainbow button? <laughs> yeah. Will likely keep the pressure on until inflation has been stamped out in all categories. Mm -hmm. That view sent two-year treasury yields that we talked about at the beginning of the show to the highest level in almost 15 years Tuesday and sparked the biggest equity sell-off since June of 2020. Mm. With the S&P 500 crashing 4.3%, I don't like the word crash, but definitely diving, and the NASDAQ composite slumping 5.2%, that slumping's a good alternative, figures in, futures in both stabilized overnight, but they were definitely down during the day. And I'm going to end with this last sentence. In terms of the Fed funds rate, markets now expect a four to four and a quarter range by the end of the year from a 2.25% to 2.5% currently, rising as high as 4.5% by March Q1. Nomura Q1. thinks it could hit 
4.75%. Holy so, cow, man. So if that happens, right? Mm-hmm. What what are what are mortgage rates going to be at when they price this in? No, it's not pair pursue. You're not going to you're not going to wind up getting like fed funds going up, mortgage rates go up. We've clearly seen that and that's mm-hmm. definitely just the way it's operated historically, but this certainly influences the tenure. Now, here is the thing to look out for and what I really really am afraid for still in the market today. Okay. You have the 2-year which is inverted, which means it's higher than the 10-year. Exactly. Right? The 10-year money should be a higher rate than your two-year rate because it's shorter duration. Exactly. And the markets have not moved the 10-year treasuries out. And the mortgage rates in the industry, 30-year, everybody else, they all tend to follow the 10-year. So at some point in time, the yield curve is going to go the other way. It's going to come out of this inversion. Yeah. And when it does, 10-year is going to rise. And when it does rise, mortgage rates are going to go up. That yeah. is just a resounding impact. And here you have somebody saying, hey, this could go up. They could be raising interest rates through March of next year, 2023. Right. Where many people at the beginning of this year were saying, oh, by 2023, the rates would be going down. Yeah, exactly. That's clearly not the case. And you're, this is just getting them there, plus holding them. Yeah. Because if you want inflation to come yeah, down exactly. in all these categories. Right. you got to hold it. Right. If you want inflation to come down in all these categories, you I, have to think about there's an international economy now. You've got Russia and China having meetings. You've got... Russia doing everything they can using what I like to call an energy war now yeah. to, to impact the rest of the world. Cut I mean, out the gas line. Europe, exactly. Yeah. So th- there's a lot going on here that could be impactful for a prolonged period of time. I, so what I will say is this, is that you should expect to see additional increases in mortgage rates throughout this period of time. And you should be watching that yield curve inversion. If there's two things to look at, if you're concerned about mortgage rates, every single day, wake up and periodically through the day, look at the two-year treasury, look at the 10-year treasury. And if they're still inverted... You got a problem and there's more trouble on the horizon. Right. And then I think that was a really good point that you made that. God real, damn right. It was a good point. The, that real, I made. the real question is how long do they hold it for? That's just we're, we're just talking about getting there. You know, how long do you have to hold it there to s- stabilize, correct, whatever the hell it is you're, you know, you're trying to accomplish? That's that's the scary part. And that's the million dollar question. Multi, multi-million dollar question. If you can figure it out, you might be able to make some money betting on the downside. I would not recommend it. It's not what I do, but there's definitely a lot there. And nobody has the answers. Everybody, even some of these wonderful economists, all have different perspectives. Speaking of million dollar questions. Let's jump into some questions. Plus two for a great segue. You're welcome. Yeah, I'm going to dive in here. Uh, is there any particular order you would like to go into? Oh, <laughs> probably should turn that off a little bit. Get yeah, a little sassy with the volume. Um, okay, is there any particular order you want to go into here? No, I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't privy to any of them, so let's see it. All right. So keep in mind, as we dive into this, we are at the 40-minute mark. We'll spend eh, probably 10, 15 minutes more doing the questions. So there will be a little bit of a rapid pace to our answering. And two, I want you to think of this. One of these gets the $20 from you. Okay. All right. One of the ones that we go through. Okay. One, of, one of the best questions that we get. All right. All right. Question number one. If government is much of the cause of the issues, why do we still insist on injecting government solutions? I think the reference there is the Inflation Reduction Act, mm-hmm. the student loan forgiveness and things like that. Right. So I think there's, there's a huge disconnect personally. And Saeed, you can yeah. tell me what you think here. I, I think that the, the ideology of the legislative branch understanding and working in the best interest of the macro economy is probably not exactly accurate. Right. They, they are acting in the best interest of their voters mm-hmm. so that they can continue to stay in office and continue to curry political favor ahead of what is a very 
polarized and sensational election season coming up. Right. These people are all very power hungry and they'll do whatever it takes for them to stay in power. Yep. And there's been a huge Democratic Republican kind of divide and they've gone farther left and farther right. And it is widely thought that the Republicans will continue to to regain power during the next midterm set and during the next election, November 2024. So because of that, you're going to see a lot of playing to the voter base. I agree. Right. You know, and they're trying to win over, let's say, some some of these, you know, uh, the younger generation or people that have student loan debt. Right. They think that by doing this now, the, even though the Republicans have come out and said they're going to now fight this, you know, to I don't know if they're anticipating that this will make. I don't know that Biden's- you fight it before the midterms, though. I think you fight it after you get elected. Right. Because you don't want you don't want to be the Republican Party who's fighting this. Right. Before you, you, you don't out. exactly. Yeah. That's not what you want. But I mean. Um, it's, they're saying it is, it, it's all smoke and mirrors, right? And they're positioning themselves to make themselves seem like they're for the people, by the people and all that. So I don't know. I agree with you wholeheartedly that, um, they're not doing it for us or for anybody else other than themselves. So, yeah, the answer is, is I think there's a misguided understanding of what their intentions are. And it's not, not to look out for you and me. Mm-hmm. Uh, question number two, I don't trust that you'll give anyone $20. It's a scam. Oh, my name is not Dave Ramsey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. that that won't win best question. I actually kind of like that question. <laughs> really? I'm not lie. <laughs> if you were the Fed chair starting in January 1, 2020, how would you have handled things? If you were the Fed chair, when, when so was the if, we, if we were po- pal beginning of 2020, mm-hmm. how would we have handled things? Oh, I, gu- okay. I guess I guess the supposition is is that the Fed acted late. Yeah, and we've talked and we have discussed this, right? That yeah. I think the ideal time. Would have been sometime uh, in Q2, Q3 of 2021. It would that would have been ideal, but we're also playing Monday morning quarterback. Hindsight, right? Um, yeah, hindsight being 2020, it's really hard to say what I would have, would or would not have done. I would have definitely tried to act a lot quicker. I, I again, to your point, probably, but I would have said just before the holiday season of 2020. I probably would have, in D- hindsight, oh, oh really? I would have had a 25 basis point and normalized at least historically. Fed interest rate increase just to get the ball rolling. Yeah. See the reactiveness if there's any elasticity in the economy. See how the lacking indicators move. It gives you a couple of months to figure things out, roll through the holiday season, and then possibly looked at 25 basis points again. And then you would have had, you would have bought yourself way more runway. Right. To ramp up to what is now possibly three. That would have been so hard to do too, though, because if you think about it, like they're not working, you know, side by side with with you know um the government in the sense where they're still issuing stimmies and now we're and now we're we, yeah, but we're doing we, the same thing now yeah i mean the problem is if you expect the legislative branch to to really work in, in conjunction with you to yeah. to reduce inflation yeah. that's not that's never going to happen that's never going to so yeah, they they, no. sh- they should have said you know what fuck it they're giving out stimmies we've got to do something to offset it yeah they should have been thinking that way as opposed to you know what we can't do this right now because the fed is not supposed to be thinking from a political standpoint they're not supposed to they're supposed to be looking at monetary policy monetary policy only and what you did is you had way more consumer spending than you should have had and you had way lower unemployment than you should have had right they should have acted as far as my i'm concerned uh the december before that Mm -hmm. so i mean pretty early yeah um expectations for mortgage rates by year end i i think that they they'll be in the six handles they're going to stay there if not the seven handles. So I think you already see seven handles right now in investor product. In, in owner-occupied product, I think you're going to see high sixes. Yeah. 
uh, six, eight, seven, five, mm-hmm. six, seven, five. Yeah, I think you're gonna probably be somewhere around there by the end of the year. Particularly if you get a one one uh, percent base, you know, increase, hundred hundred basis, basis point points, increase. Yeah. yeah, I know. And if they're aiming to get to what is it now, four to four and a quarter by the end of the year? Yeah, I mean it, that's that's a that's a lot of that's a lot of juice between now and then. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I think uh, we we did call it on a previous show. When I say a couple of shows ago, we talked about how we thought the end of the year would be you know high sixes, mid sixes. So yeah. that, that's kind of I I still think none of this really changes where that's at. And I do think the yield curve is not going to uh, come out of the inversion at least until Q1 next year, maybe even longer. Yeah. I, I here here's here's my premise, and and we've talked about this before in the past. I truly believe we've taken all the elasticity out of the economy in the last 14 years. Mm-hmm. I do think it's going to take a tremendous amount of pressure. Yeah. More than we've ever had historically. Because we've never done this historically for 14 years. I think it's going to take a whole lot to get us to where the, the, the numbers that, that the Fed wants to get to. And I think that the misguided belief is that that we're going to use the same things that have worked out historically, even during Volcker's area, and see the same like results. And I think it's going to take a lot more than that. Right, right. That's just my honest opinion. Uh, the next question I think was erroneous and made it, made, I, it doesn't seem like it's in English. Why is Saeed better looking? No. <laughs> Okay, first of all, Saeed doesn't even have a social media account. I posted a photo briefly the other day. Saeed lost his shit because it was a terrible looking photo. It was a terrible looking photo. So man. he's even better looking than that. Yeah, if my, you're sister, to a photo. my sister texted me saying, Why does it look like you're going to kill somebody? <laughs> oh, so you saw it before I sent it to you? No, no, no. no. She sent it to me after. Yeah, it was just because I don't have social media, right? And you, I deleted it. You sent, you, sent it you sent it to me, and I, and I asked her, I was like, Hey, did you see the post? She's like, Yeah, I was going to ask you, Why does it look like you killed somebody? Because you were angry at me because I was putting lights in your face. <laughs> Where do you see your podcast in six months? How can I benefit from the current economy? You pick one. I'll do the other one. Uh, where do you see your, our podcast in the next six months? I'll take that. Um, Poor. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the studio uh, build out ain't we, cheap, man. We spent a lot of money. And by we, I mean, Chris has spent a lot of money <laughs> on, on uh, the build out of the studio. We still can't wait for you guys to see it. I I think our initial goal, although it may be a little uh, ambitious, was to get. We're currently sitting at a top two percent podcast, right mm-hmm. in our in our sector. But um, no, that's, that's all. Top two percent's all. That's not even in our sector. I did not know that. Yeah, um, no, it's, that's top two percent all podcasts. Top two percent all time, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think we were aiming to get to one percent. I still want to hold. I want to, you know. I think a, that's viable. Six months. I, it's going to be tough, but. Yeah. Um. There's a lot that also is not we we can't control, but we're gonna keep doing what we're doing, and hopefully we can get there. You're giving you bangers. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how can I benefit from the current economy? Well, I would say right now it, it's hard to to guess what's going to happen with Fed rates and how the market's going to move. But what I can tell you is this will have a dramatic impact on real estate. Now, depending on what your what you really want to get into as an investor. Do you want to buy real estate? Do you want to get into the real estate investment trust? Do you want to go into the stock market? Are you looking to start a business? Every business I've ever started, started in a recessionary economy. And ironically, this podcast is no different. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, I don't know why, just for some reason, I, I guess when things get really frothy, I tend to look at other ideas for when the market goes down. And for some reason, that gap in time is just always when I started. I think now is a great time to start a business if you're going to plan to come out of it the next couple of years. Right. A lot of these companies are going to go away and there's going to be this excess demand when the economy turns the other way. I think that's that's definitely one thing to think about. And that's what happened, uh, right, when uh, you and the team got together to start the bank. Yeah, October 2007 uh, right. is when we opened our doors to the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we got together several months before that, but we were in the height, uh, we were kind of close to the height of what was in the Great Recession. So, right. 
uh, and nobody was lending back then, and we were there able to lend money. We had fresh capital, so it all kind of made sense. I would say if, if you're gonna, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably like real estate on some level, uh, and if you don't, well, you should. Uh, I think there's some great real estate deals coming up. I don't think holding cash is a bad thing. A lot of people will say, oh, I don't hold cash, it loses money. I think you hold cash. I think you see how the market turns and you plan to make a move, whether that's to invest in a business or buy a piece of real estate, but do not fall for uh, analysis or paralysis by analysis. I want you be involved, be engaged, be in the market mm-hmm. and look to buy something. Take a risk. Depending on how old you are, it shouldn't really matter. At least you did something. Food for thought. When you ask a, a lot of older people about their regrets in life, it's almost never the things they did. It's the things they didn't do. Yeah, I love that. All right. Do you really think institutional money has no risk if prices come down? We saw Zillow exit. Um, hmm. Mm. I think if the reference is does institutional money, who are the buyers of single family residences, do they have any risk if prices come down? No. Uh, we talked about this. Yeah, I, I would say that their cost of capital is so cheap relative to you, the consumer, or other other types of money sources, that a lot of these larger institutional think like BlackRock, people like that, they don't have the same cost of capital, so they're not really concerned with the same degree of yields everybody else is. And keep in mind, they've locked in their debt. Right. So their thirty year at call it three percent or whatever their equivalent is for for cost of funds on their debt. They're going to get a better deal than you and me, number one. Mm-hmm. And number two, they're going to cash flow positive in most of these markets because they're not going to be leveraged super high in their portfolio. They're going to keep their leverage probably around 55% at maximum. Keep in mind for multifamily commercial real estate, it's not uncommon to have your debt service coverage ratio and your loan to value limit one another. So your DSCR will be you know, capped at a 115, 120, 125. And that'll mean your LTV will be lower. Right. So these institutional investors like getting more than call it 55, 58% leverage in places like California on their properties so they can get 55, maybe 65%. That's still low relative to the market. Unless a market has a 40% haircut, they're not underwater. And even then, unless there's a huge renter fallout, they're still going to be cash flowing. So explain to to the listeners um, that if for institutional buyers, right, are are they primarily buying now to rent it out and that is that their goal or to ultimately sell down the road and make a profit on it? I think everything that I've seen so far, I mean, we're, we're kind of trying to read the tea leaves of what somebody else is doing, but yeah. everything that I've seen so far suggests that they're really buying for long-term holds for cash flow, mm-hmm. similar to how they bought multifamily property for a great deal of time. Right. Keep in mind that multifamily operates a bit differently, but when you think about a multifamily apartment complex, call it a 12-unit building, mm-hmm. what's the tantamount difference to a 12 12-unit building Versus owning twelve single family residences in in and around the same city, right? I mean, other than the proximity, it's easier to manage too. This yeah, way, right? yeah. It, it's a little easier to manage. Plus, I mean, you have some you have some other you know efficiencies, if you will. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, for them, they were able to get into a position to buy an income producing asset like a piece of property, mm-hmm. and they can rent them out in some markets like the Midwest, where a single family residence is probably more desirable than an apartment building, right? Oh yeah, and if you, and if you really think about it, right? Like with housing being, you know, the way that it is, and it's not affordable. You know, people are going to rent these homes now, and so rental rates have a, gone up. And I will say that the rental rates are starting to kind of stabilize a bit because yeah, we the rental rates skyrocketed so much that we're already starting to see trajectory slow down and decelerate, if not come down in some markets. So there's no data out on that yet. It's still definitely a lagging indicator yet another in a series of lagging indicators, but we're seeing a significant deceleration in rental rate. It was just so unsustainable 
and people were having such huge fallout that that we're starting to see that back off. Now you're still going to see rental increases in New York and Texas and Florida and Los Angeles and San Diego, right? But you're definitely in the Midwest and areas like that. You're not going to command uh, you know these massive increases. Do you, right. you know, do you remember that property that I, that I had the issue with? Mm-hmm. I tried to relist it. Uh, I think it was running, running it out for like fifteen ninety five a month originally. Yeah, we had all damage, fixed it all up. Yeah, we were hoping to get twenty one hundred bucks a month. We signed a two year lease for nineteen hundred dollars a month. Okay, so I mean, still, still, uh, you know, four hundred something dollar a month or about increase, right? Yeah. And you locked it in for two years, and yeah, maybe the, maybe the person living there feels like they got a deal and they'll take care of it. So I mean, again, not yeah. not not nothing, but certainly not a huge huge increase. Right. Um, we saw a Zillow exit. I think you saw a Zillow exit for a different reason. I think that their eye buying platform was not built for scale. They certainly have a very different model than Open Door. Open Door, I think, has got a better execution. I don't like the model. I've fallen under a lot of criticism for not liking the model. So what is the model of Open Door? Open Door is effectively they're, they're, they're willing to buy your house, but they have boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. So they're going to buy your ha- buy your home cash. They're going to help you get out of it, right? And mm-hmm. they're going to turn around and sell it, and it's vacant. But you, the consumer, can download their mobile app and go check out properties in and of yourself and on their on their site. Your own on your own. You don't need a real estate agent for that. Wow. But they also cater the real estate agents too, so they kind of have the full gambit of people willing to show properties there. Pretty cool. Because the real estate agent, you know, you can go anytime you want. It's vacant. Right. You know that it's open door on the other side, and you know you're going to get like a reasonable kind of. So what about experience. it? Don't you like? Uh, I don't like the idea of buying people out of properties from an institutional perspective. I yeah. think, you know, it's not consumer to consumer. It's business to consumer at that point. Right. And there is some profitability built in for open door. So you're getting a little bit lower of an offer, although a reasonable one. Mm-hmm. And they're getting, I think th- this model works in an interest rate, you know, kind of flat environment, but an interest rate increasing environment where values are going down. I don't know how that works. And that's been my biggest criticism uh, of their model, despite the fact that I like so much about it. And people have been very, very harsh I don't believe they're profitable yet. And if you see the companies that were really kind of what I would call the unicorns of the last couple of years in real estate, like Compass, mm-hmm. they're getting fucking crushed right now. Wow, well, yeah. Because they live, you know, fortunate. If you're in business and you, let's say you're Compass, let, you know, let's not use Compass. Let's, let's say you're a real estate company, right? Yeah. And you've been in business for 12 years of the last 14 years. And every single year you've had this growth and you've been scaling. You've got a seed round, an A round, a B round of funding, and you're like crushing it. You start to believe that you're really fucking good. Right. You don't think that you're the benefactor of one of the most prolific and awesome economies yeah, for yeah, growth exactly, in yeah. history. Yeah, I'm the shit because I'm the shit, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm the poo-poo, please. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, we do have an explicit rating. Sorry. Yeah. All right. Uh, best advice you would give your younger self just starting their career in banking? Oh, wow. Wow. Okay, so I would say my younger self was so eager for financial growth that I didn't appreciate the ability and access I had to everybody in the institution. Mm. As a 26-year-old who got into banking, having had a history in lending, I, I had access to everybody from the CFO to the president to the chief credit officer to uh, everybody, the CEO, I mean, everybody. Right. And I, I didn't appreciate that you don't get that in larger banks. You don't get that, that level of, of interaction. A lot of people go to like programs like Pacific Coast Banking School, which is great. If you're Wells Fargo, you're Chase, you're you go to these, these schools and they teach you kind of about the inner workings of banking. Right. I never felt the need to have to go because I was around everybody who was running the bank when I you know, wasn't in, in an executive position. Right. But being around, you got to make sure you take advantage of that. Right. And, and I didn't appreciate it then. Right. I had, I had access to people that taught me so, so much about running the business of banking yeah. that I could have never gotten anywhere else. Mm-hmm. I know. And for me, it's along that same path. Would have been, you know, I started off, you know, my banking journey at a at a big bank like Wells Fargo, and um, there you get pigeonholed, you get pigeonholed real quickly, yeah. you know. 
And um, once I came over, you know, to the community banking side where, and when I, when I first started out like 10 years ago, you know, everyone there was wearing multiple hats, you know, and really, you really got exposed to a lot of things, you know, and um, lucky for me, the institution that, uh, that we work at, uh, there's an open door policy. I got to take advantage of a lot of mentorship that people are willing to offer. So that that's what I would do. I'd say maybe go work at a place where you can wear multiple hats and, you know, really learn the business as much as you can. So the next question was interesting. I'm actually looking it up right now. And by way of uh, full disclosure, Said and I have this glorious ultra high definition 55 inch television in front of us on a rolling stand. We can roll out and do things like this and pull up information. Our wives don't know we have this yet. Not yet. They're, yeah. <laughs> they're, at some point, they're going to come and check out the studio probably tomorrow. Yeah. And when they do, I'm not sure they're going to let us come here as much. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, exactly. Like, this, this is turning out to be I wanna quite let, nice. I want to yeah. let them come check it out and then let's just wait outside. Yeah, yeah. So let's see here. First one that comes up, Biden maneuvers to try to avoid devastating rail strike. The Biden administration is considering executive action to try and avoid a shutdown of the nation's rail network that would harm the economy ahead of the midterm elections. I heard elections. That, they, that they were, like, what was it, 60,000 workers going to, you know, have a strike? Yeah. Uh, so I, What's I have the question? What's the question? Thoughts on the upcoming strike with the railway railway unions. Oh, okay. We haven't so, had much time to look into that. I haven't had much time. And I, I will admit today was a bit of a busy day. I was dealing with some uh, USPTO patent and trademark office stuff that wound up becoming a 40-page dissertation uh, that all was for, for nothing because <laughs> a conversation kind of sorted it out. But right. I, I was busy with that and obviously the day job in the bank and I didn't get deep into this. But what I will tell you is this is a, a if, if there's any corollary that I can think in recent history is what happened up in Canada with the trucking mm. strike. Yeah, right. So... This is significantly more impactful than people realize, particularly before the election. We're already having a supply chain issue in and of itself, but if you cut off the supply rails, delivery right. mechanisms that we have, right, you're going to have a huge, huge problem. And so much of what we get is on the railway still, right. And I don't, I don't know. I haven't followed up with what's going on at the docks. You know where all the imports and exports are coming in, like less, even in like in Long Beach. I don't even know if that's been cleared up at all, but you, I can imagine coupling this with that. I mean, what happens to the supply chain then? On Wednesday, in anticipation of a strike, Amtrak said it would cancel all long-distance passenger trains beginning on Thursday in order to avoid possibly stranding people giving that many of its trains run on tracks operated and maintained by freight car carriers. Wow. wow. Uh, on, uh, also on Wednesday, members of a small rail union whose leaders had reached a tentative deal with freight companies voted down the agreement, signaling more difficulty in negotiations to come. So, yeah, I, I think this is very, very, very bad, particularly before uh, before the midterms. And I think because of that, you're going to see uh, a lot of political pressure on the unions to resolve this issue quickly. Right. So do we know what the strike, what are they striking over? Uh, I don't think I have anything here. But, yeah. Um, assuming rail strike could cripple U.S. economies, transportation. One rail union rejects deal to accept ahead of strike deadline. So I think it's probably just uh, for the workers better can do my best. But uh, let, let's table this one for next week. Let's let's jump into it. If actually we're recording another podcast tomorrow, we'll do that for tomorrow, which yeah. we'll air yeah. Afterwards. We'll do some so. more research for you tomorrow. Uh, what are some industries you guys believe uh, to be recession proof for the next two years? Oof, recession proof. Yeah, there is nothing that's recession proof. There is nothing in my mind. There is no true hedge for inflation other than to continue investing in what you would normally invest in 
almost like a lifetime of dollar cost averaging, if you think about it. Thank you, Professor Norris. Thank you, Professor Nick Norris. I saw him today. Did you? Yeah, I grabbed I was... his butt. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know if you're allowed to say that. I was, I, in, I, in front of people, yeah. <laughs> I did, yeah. Like was, this whole team was there. And he's like, hey, man, good seeing you. We should go up and have you know coffee with, with Hugo, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm like, yeah, good seeing you too. And he was like, the whole team was behind him and I just grabbed his button and walked away. <laughs> and they're like, what the fuck just happened? I miss him, man. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, he doesn't technically work here. I mean, he works here, but I never see him, so it's yeah. not... Unless it was on camera. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, you know, I miss that dude. But he taught me a lot about this. And I'll say the same thing for recessionary economies. If, if you think that there's anything you can do that's special in recessionary economy, or, or you think that you can time it and do all these things that are great, no. Right. Now, I do think there are some businesses that are going to perk up uh, in the next couple of years. I think you're going to see some foreclosures. I think you're going to start seeing some some challenges. I think a lot of lenders are going to start going out of business more than we've already seen. Right. So I, what I think is keeping lenders afloat right now that are non-bank lenders is a lot of them had things like mortgage servicing rights. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who don't know, mortgage servicing rights are basically you're servicing somebody else's mortgage and those rights that you own, you get paid for. Usually uh, call it 25 basis points or 15 basis points of, of, the, of the money coming in. Mm -hmm. It adds up on a multi-million, if not billion dollar portfolio. Right. Those mortgage servicing rights go up in value as rates go up because the uh, the possibility of them paying off, the duration of that portfolio, the length of time that you're going to keep the average loan in the portfolio has gone up because people can't refinance out and get lower rates or they can't go somewhere else. So unless they're doing like a cash out refinance or there's some weird or they're selling it or something like that, those loans tend to be stickier and those values go up. The problem is these lenders, these non-bank lenders who are not making money because over 60% of their business, which is refinance based, mm -hmm. is gone now. Right. They're not making money buying, uh, selling loans into the secondary market on a flow basis. They're not making money with new loans because their volumes are down. So they're being forced to sell off their their seller servicing and and these, yeah. their, their you know the mortgage servicing rights because they're selling off pools of loans. As they sell off these pools of loans, they're running out of of collateral. They're running out of things to sell. So this will only last for a certain period of time. And as that happens, and we roll into the next phase of whatever this is, as rates continue to rise, because we know they're not going to go down, they're going to hold them for a prolonged period of time, at least through next quarter. Yep. You're going to start to see a lot of these non-bank lenders up against the fence. And as a result, you're going to see them go out of business. I think as you walk into the next economy, if you want to get into the mortgage and lending space, prepare for it. There's going to be a lot of loan workouts stuff coming. There's going to be a lot of transition in that field. And if you want to be on the special asset side, I think some of those jobs are very important. Right. Uh, a lot of lawyers are going to make money and then in the coming months doing stuff like workouts and special assets. Not so much on the single family side. They're going to make money in the um, in the workouts from um, usually CNI loans, business loans that are now increasing in payments because they're interest rate sensitive, right? It's mm -hmm. index plus margin. Right. And the indexes are going up because of all of these things. Yeah. Um, is there anything recession proof? I, I would, we've talked about before on the podcast that no, no recession is identical to one that's come before it. Yeah. Right? There will certainly be some industries that'll thrive. Yeah. There, there will be some that'll thrive, but one, something that, you know, really stood out to me, um, the last go around at the, during the great recession that you pointed out to me was, um, in the multifamily space. I think part of the reason why you love, you know, uh, investment real estate so much is that um, less than one percent of all multifamily loans across the nation defaulted? Yeah, right? during yeah. during a time when you know there was the Great Recession, when there was a housing crash, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that really stood out to me, um, which is probably one of the reasons why you like you know real estate investing so much. I mean, it's also a tax benefit there, um, yeah. but I think it's always been a good thing. Now, I, I do like the idea of investing on my own. I don't like syndications, and people are always looking for easy ways to get in. So, yeah. yeah. 
my thoughts there. Uh, but I, I think uh, like wholesalers are going to have a real tough time in the next year. Uh, because of that, I think the traditional real estate buyer will have an, uh, an advantage. Yeah. So some things like that I think are, are good times. Uh, good time to buy a first rental live in Oklahoma. Shout out to the OKC. What's up, baby? <laughs> Age 23. We own our home. 29% DTI. Great. I'm assuming it's front end. But um, so, yeah, there's. Um, wow. OK, so you're doing great. I, I think uh, good time to buy a first rental. Yeah, I think in the next year or so. And, and we talked about this before in the show. Three months. Wait, you know, for uh, three months at a time. See where the mm-hmm. market's at. I know Oklahoma market very well firsthand. I don't think values have started to really go down a little bit, but certainly there's a lot less properties listed there. And I think sellers are starting to figure out that it's not exactly their market because the realtors uh, are really communicative, I think, in the Midwest, at least the ones that I've, I've spoken to. So mm-hmm. I think in the next six months or so, you're probably going to get an opportunity to buy. Now, I would tell you uh, there are some people, friends that we of the show that we know that that like to invest in the college towns. Uh, you can certainly do that if you want to invest in those towns. I've typically invested in Edmond, which is a suburb on the northwestern uh, side of Oklahoma City. I like that area a lot. I've got mm-hmm. a lot of uh, family there and a lot of people that that I know and love there. And I think that that's been a great rental market for me. Uh, I also think there's a couple places in downtown which are really unique, and it's a hustling and bustling kind of area. So if you like the downtown area, particularly by the stadiums. Uh, there's some interesting buildings there that, that have some cash flow potential. But I, I do think values are still a bit high and rates as they go up. No need to overpay right now, right? Yeah, no need to overpay right now, especially because right. you can overpay on rate. You can always refinance down. The 29% DTI, I would say you're in a, in a great position and you want to try to find something that in this market, uh, putting down, call it 20%, if you would get 250 bucks a month in free cash flow after management fee, I think I think you're... You're good. Yeah. That's a good place to start. And then when you refinance down, you can probably make that closer to four or 500 bucks a month. Mm-hmm. That being said, we also have a, uh, a brokerage out there, Black Crown. Feel free to hit us up. Uh, we can hook you up. And my sister runs that. Lisa Marnie, give her a Very hard time. Very cool. Yeah. Um, and we also do property management. So there you go. Uh, I need an alternative perspective on selling a service. This is going to be the last question for tonight, by the way. Okay. I need an alternative perspective on selling a service, how to sell without feeling yucky. Oh. Uh. Wow. Okay. Um, I have never been a good salesperson. Mm. Uh, I've been a great asshole. (laughs) Um, I've been a lot of things. Never a good salesperson. At least I never thought that of myself. Uh, But somebody once told me something and it really resonated that in today's culture more than any other culture, I think when we were kids in a younger generation that there was always something to be said for like the sleazy salesperson. Mm -hmm. I think what really makes a great salesperson today is authenticity and genuineness. I think I think it really define what you need to define is your definition of great salesperson, right? Well, someone that that makes a lot of money or someone that has some integrity. But I think you can do both. I think integrity, authenticity, like these things really matter to people, but if you need if you can network and really connect with people and you yeah. have those things, yeah. they will trust you. Yeah, exactly. If, if you're being genuine and open and honest, I I think you have a longer term viability in the sales role so you can't look at somebody who's crushing it right now who's a sleazy salesperson because they take a lot they take advantage of a lot of people along the way mm-hmm. and their sales you know productivity is a, is a bell curve it's going to come back down right whereas a person with integrity and honesty who actually cares and has great networking skills and follows Net- up and, and goes above and beyond goes above you. and beyond yeah there's nothing that, that's, that's yucky about that there's nothing that's bad if you're selling a service and you want people to buy your service right you want people to buy you yeah make sure you stand out and you you know you showcase you know what it is that you're willing to do that maybe your competition isn't. And I know this person. I'll tell you right now, I've seen your profile. We've exchanged a few uh, conversations here and there on, on and via DM. 
she's a great person. You you mm-hmm. should absolutely not feel it bad about who you are and being genuine, and you will sell that service and you will crush it. Just stay consistent and really build on build rapport with your clients, and you'll be fine. Right. Long term play, right? Long term play. That's what it is. You you really have to to be who you are. It's kind of one of those things where you see people who have like a social media page mm-hmm. for them, and they have one for their business. People don't want that anymore. You have one page for you, and you are your business. You can't divorce yourself from who you are. And the people who try to separate themselves, that's disingenuous. Right. So, all right. We got to pick one. Who gets you know, bucks? I was leaning towards. Yeah, I know which one you're leaning towards. No, I was leaning. Oh, no, no, not that one. Okay. I was leaning towards uh, the institutional buyer one. Oh. But um, based on this last individual who just wants to make sure that they come off as someone that has integrity and doesn't want to be, quote unquote, yucky. I'm going to give it to her because she seems like a good person. I do too, but I was also leaning towards the institutional buyer one. You, oh, we both were? Yeah. How about we, we give $20 each? $20. Ball's so hard. Hey, man. Two of them. All right. We'll send them both tomorrow. Uh, I have both questions. So the question that they're going to get it is, do you really think institutional money has no risk if prices come down? We saw Zillow exit, and I need an alternative perspective on selling a service, how to sell without feeling yucky. Yeah, thank you everybody for sending in those questions. Yeah, that was great. Anything else before we sign off? No, sir. Mr. Uchi Wally Wally. Mr. Uchi Bang Bang. <laughs> and the <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen of Real Estate. See you next week. Goodbye. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation on the Higher Standard Podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform you are listening to this on. If you like this episode, please write a review and share it with us. You're getting the show up and running right now, so every message, every review, and every note counts. This show exists to showcase what's possible when leaders decide to uphold a higher standard for their businesses, their investments, their families, and most importantly, themselves. If you want to see more of my content, I post daily on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. So be sure to follow me on your favorite social media platform. And with that, it is a wrap. And as always, I look forward to hanging with you all on the next episode.